Welcome everybody to a new episode of Escaping the Brave New World. My name is David Goslin. I'm the editor of The Chained Muse. And I'm back here with our guest, Matthew Arrett, who is a journalist, uh, the founder of the Rising Tide Foundation, and also the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Magazine. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me back on, Dave. So I thought we'd have you back on because we had a really great discussion last time about this whole question of the, the brave new world that we're in many ways living in. And I think, you know, that can mean many things to many different people. You know, what does it mean to live in a brave new world? Uh, you know, is everybody really brainwashed and, you know, just part of this, uh, you know, the pawns of this some kind of evil Hollywood crazy conspiracy? You know, what does it mean? And so I thought that we would title this episode Creativity, Brainwashing, and Ideological Subversion because there's a lot of, there's a lot of conspiracy talk out there. There's all sorts of crazy ideas. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are all sorts of crazy things happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think at a certain point, a lot of people are, you know, wondering why is everybody going crazy? What is going on with the political debate? What is going on with the economic system? And there just seems to be a general trend of chaos. And in a sense, I think it helps to think about it like a storm. You know, a storm seems like something very chaotic. Cows are flying in the air, moo, the cars are flipping over. But a storm is actually a very organized process. You know, it has a geometry. Mm -hmm. And so I think the purpose of this discussion is really to try and investigate uh, the geometry of the kind of crisis that we're in and see if we can kind of find some higher ground in which to situate ourselves and ultimately uh, escape the kind of brave new world that's brewing before us. Hmm. Yeah, I really like the way you said that. And, and it's, it's a great uh, analogy to one of the key problems that, that a lot of people are facing today um, when dealing with the issue of, of problem solving big problems, right? Like humanity is facing gigantic problems, mm -hmm. uh, things that most people haven't experienced in their lifetimes. And they just can't, they could see that there are, there is a crisis, but they can't at, for the life of mo many people see the causality because they've been trained to look as if they were inside of a storm, as you just pointed out. I love that idea at, at the parts and, and there's no rhyme or rhythm organizing the parts of the, of, of chaos of cows and the trailer park homes fly, flying around. But it's only when you're able to take a top-down view and, and move your mind outside of your physical reality and look down upon the process that you can manage to begin to see that there is an actual order and organization to the process that's conceivable. And a lot of people, have, are they just artificially turn their minds off before even being able to get to that place because there's certain um, ideas planted like, like an electric fence in our minds that shock us. Like the idea that, oh, you're, you're moving towards a conspiracy theory. That there, you know, you're implying that there are ideas and intentions that are organizing teleologically processes on the earth towards destinations. That's that's some place that I have to turn my mind off. I can't allow my mind to move there because it's just it, I, I've been told that it makes no sense. And so, you know, there was somebody I, I really respected who once said that it's not so much what you think about anything that really matters so much as how you think about everything that matters more. So you could be wrong about predicates but you could still have a fruitful mode of analysis, a way of thinking. 
um, which I think is tied to this idea of both recognizing the, the sensual experiences that seem to be chaotic at the same time as your mind is looking for unifying causality that, that infuses meaning um, in, in that process, but, but in a way which is self-aware, where you're aware that there, there are false patterns that you might stumble on that are not true, that are not the cause, you know? Um, alien tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists or, you know, <laughs> who, who give the very term conspiracy theory a bad name is a good example of that, where they're like, oh yeah, I know that there's, you know, I know that there are organizing principles of world history and it's the shape-shifting aliens from another world that are causing all of these things to happen historically, right? <laughs> um, right. And it's like, well, geez, you know, uh, you're halfway right. There are organizing processes in history, but you you just pooped in the punch bowl by going into the uh, the alien universe to to account for it. Well, I think there there's a question here. It's it it's really comes down to hypothesis formation, mm. right? Because people who are coming up with conspiracy theories are trying to fill in a gap. Mm-hmm. They're trying to explain something that they can't explain. And I mean, this is the basis of science, right? It's, kind, it's coming up with some sort of hypothesis, some reason to account for the things, the anomalies, right? The ironies in our sense experience and coming up with a, a, a new outlook on the universe, which could account for these anomalies. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you said, I mean, this whole idea of, you know, yeah, we're in the storm and people's perceptions of the storm uh, are, are many and they vary and everybody has a different take depending on their perspective. But I, th- I think this, this is where this question of brainwashing actually becomes important. You know, what do we mean by brainwashing? People have assumptions, people have all sorts of different ideas. Um, but when people think of brainwashing, you know, like, how do we know the ideas we have are our own, right? How do we know the hypotheses that we have about the nature of the universe outside us? How do we know that these are really our ideas, that we've come to these conclusions? Um, and how can we investigate that? So it really becomes a question of how can we investigate the origin uh, and genesis of our own axioms? So, I mean, I think that the typical cartoonish idea of brainwashing is the person that's just strapped into the chair and, you know, somebody is telling them this is not happening. This is not happening. And, you know, they become all, uh, you know, their eyes become all dark or blank and, you know, they just go back out into society and, and do whatever, uh, you know, the, the messages told them to do Hmm. a little clockwork orange, uh, scene right so that's one idea of brainwashing Mm -hmm. but if if we go back and i think we we, it's worth talking about this a bit uh this whole idea of shaping mass opinion and shaping people's perceptions that uh, this goes back to world war one and two and there was a lot of research it took the form of research into groups group dynamics group therapy you know, and what they found, uh, John Rowling Reese, Brigadier John Rowling Reese, he was the head of the Tavistock Institute, and they were doing a lot of research into shell shock and the effects of shell shock on soldiers and how could you treat trauma. And so they were investigating the, uh, 
the effectiveness of groups. You get people into groups and what they found was, you know, there's some Freudian psychology going into here, the whole mother image creating this kind of artificial family system, warm and accepting where you could kind of open up. And this is where you could, this kind of setting, they found that it, it became effective to introduce new suggestions right? People would become more suggestible within that state. And they would actually follow up with the soldiers and see if these suggestions that they had given them, you know, were they actually sticking? Were the soldiers following up once they went back into civilian life? And so this was very insightful research, which of course you couldn't really do under normal conditions. So mm -hmm. wartime conditions really allowed for these very extensive sort of, uh, you know, social experiments and see oh yeah yeah like where, where else in society would you come up with cases of, of ptsd en masse that you could experiment on like in normal stable society that wouldn't be there for the psychiatrist to work with but all of a sudden you get a war situation and yeah a lot of case studies uh that would normally be rare that you could now investigate yeah so there's this whole idea of terror right when people are exposed to high levels of stress and whatnot they become a lot more uh, suggestible, and after a certain threshold, uh, people can kind of be, uh, they can be deconstructed. Mm. And this is where it becomes easier to introduce new suggestions. So, okay, so they, they found this, and I mean, this is where this idea of brainwashing comes up, where what they found, though, is that for these suggestions to really stick, um, the targets or the patients however you, you like to call them, can't be aware that these suggestions are actually happening, right? So the real brainwashing, actually the, the, the real kind of uh, changing people's perceptions and redefining how they relate to the out, outside world, this can really only work if people aren't aware. And the reason I'm saying that is that if there is brainwashing on any sort of, you know, if we're talking about something like the brave new world, we're, we're looking at some of these, you know, operations that have taken place over time, MK Ultra, COINTELPRO, uh, and we have some more recent things that we can talk about uh, today, which are, have become very popular in academia. For these things to work, it, they only work if we don't see them. So we're starting from a point where we're operating under the assumption that if these things exist, we won't be able to see them. And how, how do you therefore proceed if that's the reality of what these operations are? And I think that's the whole point of, you know, when you have their, you know, Bertrand Russell discusses this, uh, Algis Huxley discusses this, that, you know, this kind of mass social engineering, it, uh, it has to be confined to a certain class, right? You have this sort of, uh, the, the upper management, which are sort of responsible. And this is what John Rawlings Reese talks about as well, that you need to have, uh, he calls them psychological shock troops, mm -hmm. right? You have to have people, you don't have to be many, you just have to be well-placed and you're able to introduce new ideas and suggestions. And the only other thing I'd add to this, cause I, I mean, it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. But what becomes key is environmental factors and being able to control key environmental factors, which if you have control over these, uh, people can become increasingly what they call profilable. 
you know, you can sort of predict how they're going to behave in X, Y, Z situation if you can sort of control key variables. Mm. So culture is key. Mm. And, you know, I, I've heard this saying culture, uh, politics is downstream from culture, right? And, and culture is a very effective environment because it's entertainment, right? Nobody is, uh, you know, there's no telegraphing of intentions or trying to impose any worldview. It's just culture, right? Yeah. You're just watching a movie. Yeah. So media and these things were the kind of things that we're talking about mm -hmm. uh, to exist, yeah. right? They can only exist under this kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a wider environment that, that can be sort of controlled, but is still people go about their own, uh, their own daily lives. Yeah, like how do, you, how do you create a situation of maximum freedom while uh, having the actual minimum uh, of the reality of freedom such that you're dealing with the, the parameters of culture as a tool that could either make people more effective human beings, better at being what they were born to be, um, and that has some presumptions to it, right? I'm assuming in stating that that human beings have a purpose and that we have certain inherent latent qualities in, in our, that we have a soul, that we have a mind, that we have a conscience that can be cultivated in a, in a better way or in a worse way, uh, perverted, corrupted, to diminish and destroy those, those potentials before they can be actualized. So if you can allow yourself to really start exploring history um, from that standpoint, that there is such a thing as cultural warfare, that, that these things are intelligible, that they've been intelligible for thousands of years and you can't really make any sense of the writings of Plato, any of those dialogues, if you don't have a sense of that universal history and that process. Um, Cause I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's not a coincidence that Plato's Academy was a part of a, a cultural warfare process for the good against real geopolitical processes going on in ancient Athens and around it, around Persia and the well-known oper operations that were being run by various cults of Marduk from Babylon, uh, which had, you know, operations inside of Athens um, through the cult of Apollo at Delphi, um, which ran intelligence operations, which controlled financial operations, right? Which controlled military strategies, you know, because everybody, every king would go to these, these um, priests and, and get what? some doped up priestess to babble something who would then, you know, the, the priest would then interpret what she was babbling um, how they saw fit for the different kings um, regarding whether they should go to war or have peace for a cost, right? Like they paid a lot of money. Mm. So these were strategic nerve centers of the world. And Plato's Academy was set up um, as a bastion to fight against this on many levels. So the fact that many of Plato's own students and disciples who came out of the Academy process became leaders of science who made real breakthroughs, you know, they call them the platonic solids for a reason. Um, but also people like Eratosthenes um, and many others. Uh, yeah, so Plato, Plato's Academy should not be seen as uh, something which was not part of a political fight. Um, so when, you're, when you are looking at uh, any process in history, you have cultural fields um, that accounts for the Renaissance and the battle between various factions who had different views of the nature of man in the Renaissance. Some believe that human beings had a purpose, had a soul, and that had to be cultivated by providing the means of opportunity and education for everybody, including orphans, even if you weren't born in the right hereditary family. Um, this included people like, you know, Da Vinci, Erasmus, um, many, many people who encircled um, and, and organized Henry VII, Louis XI, 
and that ensured that you could create and fund the arts and make it available for the, for the masses, right? The, the highest quality of arts. And then you had those who had a different view and, and they also funded arts, but they made sure that the arts were much more banal, much more based upon mm. momentary uh, pleasures, right? That, that would just be more of a distraction from your daily grind. The Roman, the Roman circus was a great example, yeah. Um, yeah, you could go and you know pay a little bit of money, or even sometimes for free during the festivals, which were like 200 days of the year, and just watch Christians, you know, being burnt or, or fighting, you know, animals in the in the Colosseum, um, or just gladiators yeah. killing each other. Yeah, not that different from the sort of thing that people see today when they turn on UFC. Um, so you, you got, even hmm? even Netflix, or just, or just even the, Netflix. I mean, yeah, yeah. talk about violence. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's... Everywhere. Yeah. Unwant- yeah, exactly. So one thing that, that sprung to mind as you were speaking was a quote that I just pulled up uh, by Bertrand Russell, who's somebody who situated himself in a, a not very uh, platonic humanistic uh, current of world history as a cultural warrior. He was a cultural warrior and he's known as a philosopher. He's known for as for scientific theories, which were proven all to be wrong and even fraudulent. Um mm-hmm. But he said something in 1951 during the, the period of very dense activity when there was a big fight over uh, stifling the, the freedom movement that was coming out of the, what was created by people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Henry Wallace, who had de- developed contacts around South America, around Africa, around Asia, India, Russia, um, many countries that had been um, abused for generations by colonialism. And, he, and these, these networks under Roosevelt uh, proposed something called the Four Freedoms as a policy doctrine for the post-war age that would be based upon the elimination of the British Empire. The, and it wasn't just to create, in their minds at that time, it wasn't to create an American empire. Um, you could see very clearly from their plans, from their, their discussions that were recorded, that the idea was to create a new type of paradigm of win-win cooperation where the U.S. would convert its arsenal uh, of, of military production into an arsenal of democracy. And that was a genuine desire to help Ghana, to help South America develop high quality infrastructure the, w- the way that the US had during the New yeah. Deal. And in so doing- Infrastructure, Atoms for Peace, right? That, that came later, yeah, but that was a revival of that, that, that spirit uh, under Eisenhower later on. Um, yeah, Atoms for Peace, exactly. Like uh, allow for technology transfers to other countries so that everybody could access nuclear power and it wouldn't just be something monopolized. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was being smothered. So Roosevelt died, as people know, in April, I think it was actually, this is the anniversary, April 12th, uh, 1945. And, uh, and very quickly, people who were allied with him within the intelligence services, the OSS, within Henry Wallace was, was quickly fired for trying to make peace with Russia and, and disturb other people's plans who wanted a Cold War instead. Um, Harry Dexter White died, uh, the first founder of the, uh, the IMF, uh, before he could use it as an instrument for good. And we know what happened to the IMF and the World Bank uh, very soon thereafter as it was swarmed and taken over by, by really fans of colonialism. And uh, Bertrand Russell uh, plays a big role at this point in, uh, in orchestrating grand strategy. Um, one thing he says in a 1951 book, um, and I just pulled up this quote, I just think it, it again, just for people to recollect what you just said uh, mm-hmm. about mass psychology and, uh, and shell shock and just the, how to make people m- malleable to a, a governing class. 
Russell said, I think that the subject which will be of most importance politically is mass psychology. Its importance has been enormously increased by the growth of modern methods of propaganda. Of these, the most influential is what is called education. Religion plays a part, though a diminishing one. The press, the cinema, and the radio play an increasing part. It may be hoped that in time, anybody will be able to persuade anybody of anything if he can catch the patient young and is provided by the state with money and equipment. Bone chilling, but this, he's referring to essentially the, the type of process that uh, John Rawlings Reese, who you mentioned, uh, referred to regarding these psychiatric shock troops who would be uh, positioned in uh, power positions of scientific management and governance of, the, of different nations, um, really to get across um, a new type of order of society that had never, in their minds at least, they, they're saying it's a new type of order of society. Now, for us who actually have studied some, some history, uh, we know that it's really not that new. And as Franklin Roosevelt even said, commenting on these types of, of thinkers uh, surrounding him in 1941, that it's some people talk about a new world order, but it's not new and it's not order. He knew what he was talking about. I love that quote. Yeah, and to make a fine point on what you just said with this, this Russell quote about convincing mm -hmm. anybody to believe anything. I mean, there's the Reesian theory of war. Mm -hmm. John Rawlings Reese, he developed uh, this whole idea, well, how do you win wars? And he actually says in his book, The Shaping of uh, Psychiatry by War, mm -hmm. wars are not won by killing, but by undermining or destroying the enemy's morale while maintaining one's own. And this comes up again, right? This idea that if you can demoralize somebody, if you can demoralize a group or a, a culture, right? Just with general pessimism, um, if you demoralize somebody, it doesn't really matter if they get new information, right? If they find out something new because they are demoralized mm -hmm. and they're no longer able to uh, really distinguish what reality is, mm -hmm. right? It's a state of mind. And I think it's very, it's clinically very interesting that they're saying, right, that the way to win a war is not with armies. In fact, that's the worst way. If you want to impose your, uh, you know, if a state, let's or some dictatorship wants to implement state policy, the worst thing you can do is go to war with people mm. because it's just messy. It's just totally unpredictable. And it's really the way to win a war. I mean, there's another term here, low intensity operations. Uh, mm. which also comes out of this whole Tavistock network, which is, again, the, the gradual over time, 15, 20, 25 years, one, two generations, demoralizing people, right? Mm -hmm. Getting them to lose, you know, touch with that thing which is higher within themselves, which would be that thing which is a source of optimism for all human beings. Mm -hmm. I think we want, probably want to talk about that more later, but the flip side of this whole psychological warfare is, well, you know, if one war is based on demoralization and controlling uh, how people think, right, well, where's the source of optimism, right? How do people break out of that? And I mean, I think optimism is something really contagious, but it becomes a challenge to, you know, get people to think, well, I mean, optimism, the, your life may be worth something, Mm -hmm. Right. There may be a higher meaning for your life. There may be a higher purpose. No, no, no. Don't. If you want to control people, you need to get that out of their head. Right. Like, don't 
you're nothing. Here's how you can whatever survive or, you know, you got to get people in a more sort of bestial state of mind. Hence again, the sh uh, shell shock, terror, and how these things become very uh, useful if you really want to introduce fundamentally new ideas and get the person to change their identity or to relinquish the identity that they have in favor of something that seems more, uh, you know, adaptive or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's actually super interesting because, I mean, we, we had, you and I had been talking already for a few days around some of these topics um, and, and the intersection between the, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, right, the CIA's sponsorship of, of culture um, in the post-war age intersects very much with MKUltra, the CIA's creation of brainwashing and depatterning uh, programs that themselves were the ap applied, uh, they, they, they were the applied version of a lot of the, the innovations that were being made by Rawlings Reese throughout the 1920s and the 30s into the 40s uh, yeah. on World War I and World War II shell shock victims through Tavistock, um, which itself, you know, ties in directly to um, things like COINTELPRO. And, you know, you, we, these are not conspiracy theories. These things have been brought to the surface publicly in declassified reports going back to the 1975 church committee hearings uh, from the U.S. Senate, um, which were really just you know, it was an open committee hearing on the CIA abuses and the Cold War operations that were done, which w conducted um, LSD experiments, as well as methamphetamines, cocaine, heroin, other forms of drugs and psychedelics and other chemicals, um, as well as electroshock onto thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of patients, people in mental institutions, um, prisoners, uh, drug addicts, prostitutes, people who, who basically could not defend themselves. And so oftentimes we treat the processes of, of our, of our past as if they just happened, you know, like all of a sudden people just really wanted LSD and, and, you know, all of a sudden there was just these unnecessary wars in Korea followed by unnecessary wars in Vietnam that just happened. It was a new age of war and, and, and there were no real causal intentions, but it's like, no, when you, chaos when you, theory. <laughs> effectively yeah it's chaos theory and one of the key assumptions that blinds us as well is people say oh sure there there is like i remember you said at the beginning of our, our little discussion now there's causality they might allow it in in science you know there we have a paradox we have things that are that are inexplicable according to our sense perception so we come up with a new theory uh mm. that that accounts for that that order that must that that you know a law is discovered but human beings are, are free will creatures. We have freedom. We have creativity, spontaneity. We have irrationality. We do things for no reason. So that's not like us. We're not, we're not like planets. We're not like elements on the periodic table. For us, there's no, there's no such universality. There's no such law that you can find. And it's really just randomness that makes things happen. Mm. Um, that's another assumption people have. And sure enough, it's not like you can't be random. Um, you know, sure. Uh, but is that really the organizing principle of wars and peace and renaissances and dark ages? No, no. Otherwise, how do you account for things, organized things like um, MKUltra? Again, COINTELPRO, the infiltration of, by the FBI of organizations that quickly, were anti-war. Hmm? Just quickly, uh, just help, just give people a quick uh, briefing. What is the CCF? What is the Congress for Cultural Freedom? And, you know, just in a couple of words. Sure, yeah. In a couple of words, it was just a uh, 1950 or 49 uh, denazification process uh, that started in Germany, um, funded by the CIA and the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, it was headed up by a grouping of people around Bertrand Russell, um, mm -hmm. who basically became thought leaders and leaders in new aesthetics. So they basically 
had to create a cultural cold war um, mm-hmm. based on the idea that the Soviet era, because, you know, Churchill had just recently declared the Cold War and the former allies that the U.S. had once had became our enemies and our enemies like Japan and Germany became our allies. Whole, uh, so anyway, that had just happened. And the one of the ideas was, well, since Russia and the Soviet sort of the communist bloc promotes artistic, uh, you know, realism. Um, and that's true. Like Stalin was promoting a lot of classical culture as well. He's promoting Pushkin and, and uh, you know, classical arts and, and music so they're yeah, like well hmm? it's portrayed as like it's very stringent sort of structures yeah. and rule-based sort of forms of expression mm-hmm. and that that was called authoritarian so they said people who like that form of art are authoritarian because it's so structured and sure enough i'm not you know i wouldn't say that there isn't uh authoritarian fascist art <laughs> that is yeah. you know uh stifling to the spirit sure that's there but they were basically saying all of it, anything that appears real uh, to, to touch of realism is fascist. And thus, to counteract that, we have to promote democratic forms of art and painting and architecture and music, uh, which would be fundamentally geared around personal uh, personal feelings and no, no sense of duty or reason. That has right. to be cut morality. off. Hmm? Yeah, morality, any, anything like that has to be disassociated from the art for it to be pure and it has to be based upon the idea um, as was described by various theoreticians who were part of this school uh, like Theodore Adorno was a big one that um, eros, the uh, erotic love, the erotic passions have to become synonymous with democracy and capitalism and the, and the democratic arts and the democratic man that we want to bring about as the healthy state of, of mankind through the arts that we're going to propose. Right, because the other side is that reason, rationality are used as these sort of strict modes of sort of getting people to think a certain way, which denies you your own your own feelings and your own individuality. So there's this like binary. Yeah, exactly. And you, yeah, exactly. And and one of these key characters around this authoritarian personality project uh, that came about in the nineteen. 19- I think it started in the 1944 period and they published a series of books culminating with the authoritarian, the, uh, the authoritarian personality and, and Adorno was a part of that. So is Herbert Marcuse yeah. and Marcuse is known to be um, he's often celebrated as like uh, the modern Schiller because he talks about Schiller in his works. And he says, you know, like Schiller uh, identified the um, materialistic instincts that pull us towards matter and sensualism, as well as the, the contrast with the, idealizing instincts that pull us towards Plato's forms and ideals. And uh, Schiller, um, who's a wonderful thinker, and people should really read Schiller's works and discover how Herbert Marcuse is a perversion, an anti-Schiller, if anything. Um, Marcuse says, well, I like the way Schiller uh, resolves this because this this schism of the human uh, personality, whether you're in Asia a thousand years ago, a thousand years in the future, or in Europe, Mm -hmm. you have these two aspects of being a human being that are not necessarily in harmony with each other but he's like the way that Schiller talks about harmonizing them is great I love it that's what we should do and you're like okay well what what is this exactly this your this resolution he says well Schiller says it's resolved through the play instinct that we have to cultivate the quality of playfulness so that we're not lecturing people and telling them what they should or shouldn't do because that won't make them want to change um and we're not appealing to their their sensual passions either um, but we're, we're just having fun telling jokes and, uh, and doing it in a creative way. So he says, that's good. But the play instinct in Mercuse, this is where he, he, he turns it inside out. He says, it's based on eroticism. 
the unleashing that you're going to tap into that energy by unleashing all of your erotic impulses. And that's the way you're going to play um, and resolve this contradiction. Um, there's a more, and there's just a general sort of discussion about creativity mm -hmm. as being something innately random, right? And irrational. You, you said that before. I mean, I think the idea mm -hmm. of the Congress for cultural freedom and randomness are, are two pretty close ideas in a sense, when you look at, what came about with modern art, which is mm -hmm. what the Congress for Cultural Freedom was mm -hmm. being funded to promote, right, with concerts in France, mm -hmm. in the United States, all sorts of, uh, you know, new modern composers, uh, discussions among modern writers. Uh, mm -hmm. But there was this idea, right? I mean, if we listen to Schoenberg or even... Oh God, the, the right of springs. We can't, I can't go further without saying something about that. What is the right of springs, which was considered, you know, this, this landmark, um, you know, composition uh, mm. for modernism. Is a sacrifice watched, or something? I watched the right of spring recently. Just let me watch the whole thing over. You know, mm. I, I've heard it, you know, it used to be in the Fantasia Disney movie. Um, so we mm. all heard it as kids actually. Uh, but how does it end? You know, what, what is this all leading up to? You know, there's a, a ritual dance and it ends with a sort of satanic sacrifice of a girl who sort of is forced to dance herself to death. Mm. And then the audience claps. Wow. Like every you're supposed to clap. Yeah. Right. And I, I think this group dynamic stuff becomes interesting because who's going to clap for that? Right, like the idea is you're supposed to clap for the ritual murder of the young girl. I mean, hey, this is their culture. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You have to respect that. Mm -hmm. So that was the Rite of Springs. Like that typifies the kind of stuff that you, uh, you know, could come to expect out of modernism. You know, mm -hmm. there's also Nabokov, Nabokov, uh, Lolita, you know, the, the young 14-year-old who seduces the pedophile. You know, mm. it's more of that sort of genre. He was seduced, you know. Yeah, right. It's, you know, it's the whole perspective is this love infatuation from the standpoint of the older man. I mean, these are just examples. Uh, but it, it's, it becomes really sort of mm. random, you know. You come up with anything and sort of just um, put it out there. Yeah. And again, it's your freedom of expression. Yeah. So I think that that's actually one of the more insidious things about this. Uh, I even, uh, the beat, the beat poets, um, Ginsburg and Ginsburg. Yeah. There was this whole trial, right. Where they wanted to, uh, you know, stop the printing of his books and prosecute him for indecency. And so obviously there's, you know, there's a problem with that, but the whole point is that it's always just framed as, right freedom of expression, yeah. right? And so Adorno gets into this as well, right? With mm -hmm. the idea of the, the ultimate liberation in his yeah. essay on the philosophy of modern music, the ultimate li liberation becomes necrophilia. Right, right. The, last the last perversity of style. <laughs> yes, the last yeah. perversity of style. And then you're free because yeah. you've disabused anybody and everyone from the idea that there's some sort of norm, right? Mm -hmm. That there's a norm, there's a standard. I mean, however you want to talk about it, uh, that there's some reference point outside us, which is not 
arbitrary, which we can all in some way investigate and try to cultivate within ourselves. Mm -hmm. There's none of that. What there are are your feelings, your personal feelings, your irrational desires, your erotic desires, Mm -hmm. and your, you should free yourself. Yeah. 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 Baby. Yeah. Um, yeah. Be free from these, these authoritarian dictatorial systems. Yeah. Right. Exactly. No. And, and, and the, the fact that idea, (laughs) no, it's really wild. And when you look at some of these high priests of the LSD counterculture age, like Timothy Leary, um, he was even on record in a 1977 meeting of the, I think it was like something like the, the fathers of the, of the psychedelic movement. And, you know, he, he was there with his, his colleagues and he said, everything I am, I owe to the foresight of the CIA. He loved it. He was, he, he was self-aware and had no problem. Saw no contradiction with the fact that this LSD that he became a guru promoter of, and, you know, he recruited thousands. He affected probably the psyche of millions of young people. Um, he saw no contradiction contradiction to the fact that this was something that came out of the military industrial complex. It was uh, worked on throughout the 1950s on, again, psychiatric patients. Yeah. And uh, it was then distributed across all of the campuses. So people like Allen Ginsberg, you mentioned Ginsberg. There's another yeah. guy who like received a massive amount of support, funding, promotional uh, work by the CIA under the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And in fact, I was just reading an article that went through how um, Gregory Bateson, the mm. anthropologist and, and social engineer, was a yeah. big uh, a, a, a official in the uh, a player in uh, MK Ultra, in the CIA mm-hmm. project uh, that itself was created in 1951 of, indirectly, and then later uh, became on put was put online under uh, Alan Dulles, the CIA director in 1953. But Gregory Bateson recruited Allen Ginsberg uh, to drugs and to become part of the mk ultra process um right and i mean we gotta tell what's wrong with drugs i mean we gotta sort of right why, why are you talking about this the way you are right i think it's 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 a worthwhile question to take up because yeah. you know, we're talking about the brave new world mm-hmm. and in the brave new world there's something called soma yeah and soma is really just the way that you know we take the edge off things yeah uh you know we all have to take the edge off things, uh, you mm-hmm. know, every now and then. And so in the brave new world, you have this, you know, the, the trifecta of the soma, the, the feelies, facts, and mm-hmm. the synthetic music. What did you say? I thought they were called the feelies or something. It's like the, it's like a cinema, but w- which involves all of your senses getting right. stimulated right. at the same time. The feelies. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, there's all sorts of, again, it's very sensual. It's interesting. Yeah. That's, it's, it's very overt. It's super uh, immersive. Yeah. It's kind of like virtual reality with, yeah. Yeah. yeah the the way social engineers want to think of virtual, virtual reality today, that's sort of like what, what Huxley was thinking about back then. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of uh, insight, right? The, again, is this just fiction? You know, why was Huxley writing these kind of dystopian novels? Why was 1984 written? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, were these just stories or no, these were sort of investigations and, uh, you know, imaginings of different ways that societies can actually be uh, reimagined, right, mm-hmm. and recreated. Um, and you mentioned uh, Timothy Leary. I think I should throw this quote out here because the question is, you know, what's wrong with drugs? Or, you know, what, how are drugs being used in this context? Why are we discussing it? 
I, I think it's important because we live in a brave new world drug culture. Um, I mean, I think we should be able to just uh, openly and freely discuss that. I mean, we're in Montreal and, yeah. uh, you know, drugs are highly abundant. And I mean, it's really become normalized. Uh, mm -hmm. So, well, okay, what's, what's the big deal? Well, what's become normalized really is escaping reality. And I mean, this was a process uh, that has taken place over decades where, especially you mentioned after World War II and with the advent of all these new wars, these, these irrational wars, uh, you know, in Vietnam, Korea, all the protests, uh, the assassinations of leaders like MLK, JFK, uh, you know, if you really stand up for truth, you're, you're going to get shot, basically. Yep. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, you can't, you can't fight the man type of stuff. Uh, and there was, there, there's a great uh, a, a TED Talks called The Beatles and Chaos Theory. And the, um, the thesis of the presenter is that one of the reasons he thinks the Beatles and this kind of the rock, drug, sex, counterculture, you know, why did this stuff become so popular? it really was a reaction to all the chaos in the world and that the, the, the culture, the entertainment became a means of sort of getting away from all that, which yeah. is understandable, right? It became a means of sort of escaping all this, the, 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 the overt evil uh, that was, you know, taking place and being committed by, you know, countries like the United States that were, were founded, you know, in opposition to oligarchy you know, how was this nation being used to commit all these war crimes? You know, how are all these nations doing that? And so I think it's important to situate the discussion of the drug culture, the entertainment culture, uh, you know, this brave new world culture where we have SOMA, we have all these different ways of just sort of uh, tapping out. Um, the, the drugs are no small part. And you mentioned Timothy Leary, Yep. I have a quote in front of me, which I, I should, you know, I think it's worth throwing out. Please. This is from his memoir, um, from his uh, autobiographical account of the Harvard University Psychedelic Drug Project. It's called Flashback. And he says, these brain drugs mass produced in the laboratories will bring about vast changes in society. This will happen with or without you or me. All we can do is spread the world the word. And I apologize. This is, this is first Huxley. This is Timothy Leary. I apologize. Giving the account of his discussion with Algis Huxley. Mm -hmm. right. So Algis Huxley writes to him, these brain drugs mass produced in the laboratories will bring about vast changes in society. This will happen with or without, with or without you or me. All we can do is spread the word. The obstacle to this evolution, Timothy, is the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so then Leary uh, chimed in uh, after uh, reporting that account. We had run up against the Judeo-Christian commitment to one God, one religion, one reality that has cursed Europe for centuries and America since our founding days. Drugs that open the mind to multiple realities inevitably lead to a polytheistic view of the universe. We sense that the time for a new humanist religion based on intelligence, good-natured pluralism, and scientific paganism had arrived. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's good. That's, that's fascinating. That's clear. No, that's absolutely clear. 
Yeah, and and the fact that Aldous Huxley was somebody who himself, just like Bertrand Russell, wasn't just a theoretician. He was somebody who was part of a, a multi-generational family, right? That uh, situated its identity since it's his grandfather, Thomas Huxley, his father, Leonard Huxley, his brother, Julian Huxley, and his kids and grandkids. If you look at what their, their, their roles have been uh, in years after Huxley died, um, he was self-consciously part of a process. And he talks about in his 1961, um, I think it's a lecture at Stanford. Um, Berkeley. Berkeley, that's it. Yeah, the famous one uh, on the ultimate revolution where he yeah. describes his view that, you know, there's always been an oligarchy and we should, we should all assume that there always will be an oligarchy. And the best we can do when he's talking to these young upstart wannabe uh, alphas, you know, in, the, in his brave That's new world. Right. Yeah, a little, exactly. It's like the best we can do is, is do our best to support in, in the best way possible the equilibrium of that, of that structure. And, and, you know, he goes through in, in this bone-chilling uh, discourse um, his view on how best to make that happen. So he's not really talking about theory or, or fiction in his Brave New World. And it's, it's clear in, in locations like that speech, as well as locations like his Brave New World Revisited 10 years later, where he's like actually doing a recap on the advance of Soma, a.k.a. now LSD, mm-hmm. and how, it's, uh, how effective it's been at achieving a lot of the things he thought he would never even live to see. And he's like, oh, here I am 10 years later. I'm actually seeing him. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but that they that they zero in on Christianity and the Judeo-Christian ethic as one of their their key problems that are holding back their their vision of the future of the world that they believe should be. Um, I think yeah, when you read a lot of the writings of people like George Lukacs or Walter Benjamin or Theodore Adorno, you tend to find a zeroing in on that same idea being developed. And I've not read nearly enough, but everything I have read, they're, they're, they 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 seem to zero in on this concept. Um, like in the case of uh, Lukacs, there was a, in his critical theory, which mm-hmm. sort of forms the base of a lot of the, the critical race theory and math is racist and a lot of the things uh, involving political correctness and self-censorship in today's society. Right. It, it's rooted in a lot of the theories of the, the Frankfurt School, which all of these guys were a part. Um, and George Lukacs was a, was a big uh, personality. And he's of the view that... Um, with Walter Benjamin is another big name that uh, we should really strip away any relationship of the, the artist with the divine, with creation and of God and any art that comes out of, and also any statecraft that comes out of, or any theory that comes out of that idea of uh, the, the person inspired by morality, conscience, God um, that produces then creative works in politics or in arts or in music um, all of that is bad because it prohibits us from achieving the type of revolution needed. Because in their view, you can only get that revolution, that type of social change, which they're all obsessed with, is revolution. Mm-hmm. And they're like, communism isn't, hasn't been satisfying so far. Capitalism is a disaster. We don't want that. We don't like fascism. It's all too authoritarian. It, it's not organic enough. Mm-hmm. They're, they're of the view that to make it organic, the proper world revolution is you have to bring people to the, the depths of despair and, and all hope has to be cut off and severed from them before they could be, be remade in the image you want to, to remake them in. Mm-hmm. So um, their, their sense is Christianity to the degree that we have that or anything Judeo, Judeo-Christian, ultimately anything that, that is a religious uh, process in the world that ties people to their, their deep traditions of their past, their morality, um, 
it 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 prevents them from being brought down to that left that depth of despair if they believe that there's something uh, beyond them, right. right? And so that's 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 what we have to put our money into subverting in the arts, whether it's in painting, things like Jackson Pollock or Mark Rothko, or in atonalism, which Theodore Adorno, who doesn't even like atonalism, as far as I could see, he's not a big fan of it. He he kind of admits it's ugly, but mm. in Adorno's own writings, um, I've seen quotes where he said that. Uh, we could feasibly produce music like Beethoven, I guess, but we can't. We have to do atonalism because for the very fact that it is sick and so are we. And, and we need the sickness to ultimately heal ourselves. In his mind, that's how we, you have to have that sense that he's of the philosophical view that we have to be brought down to the depths of sick despair in order to be brought back into health. It's like a blank... Yeah, and this is where the idea of, I think, the shock therapy of the blank slate becomes so fascinating for a lot of these social engineers, because it yeah. seems you could, you could, when you bring people to a level of terror and despair sufficiently, um, and you could do this through electroshock therapy with, mixed with drugs, is very useful that they did in MKUltra, mm -hmm. um, you're able to, to get an artificial blank slate. But they were never able to finalize it to figure out exactly how to do it, because there would always be ar artifacts from the old personality poisoning their ideal um, human who's torn down to be reconstructed. Um, yeah. And, and that's really, I think, just to finalize that, that thought, um, I was reading a while ago, um, Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, and right. it's not a good book for the most part. There are good things in it, and I think that has to do with a lot of the researchers that she was working with. Uh, mm -hmm. But the first couple of chapters goes through MKUltra, and, and the point is made very clearly that um, the... MKUltra was never about the individual or even the, the individual group. It was always about ultimately taking what you could learn because this program was dissolved after 20 years in 1974, 73. But the idea was always to learn how you could deconstruct and reconstruct from an individual, then to a group, and then apply that to nations in the form of shock therapy. And, and could you, using instruments like the World Bank, the IMF, yeah. And other things, the CIA covert operations conduct enough terror on a people, as we saw with, let's say, for example, Russia in the 1990s, that you can impose shock therapy onto the nation as a whole to break down that whole society such that it could then be sufficiently traumatized and then rebuilt in the image of those social engineers at the top conducting the... the... So, yeah. yeah, I just wanted to, to throw that little coterie out there. Oh, and one last thought, too, that just popped in my head. Um, since these guys are all focused on the authoritarian personality, what they're saying also, like Adorno, who's part of that project with Marcuse, uh, Marcuse, is that anybody who believes in truth, and this is published in 1948-49, anybody who believes in truth um, is, is a potential new Nazi, a new Hitler. And this is used by the FBI and the CIA, by Alan Dulles and J. Edgar Hoover, who are trying to deal with the problematic figures like Paul Robeson, the famous singer, the baritone singer and actor who's a, a civil rights leader. Um, he's a, a figure on, of international renown, an anti-imperialist, um, a leader of the Pan-African movement, and he's an American. Um, and he's an individual who is calling out, if you read his speeches throughout this period, he's calling out the entire CIA, MI6 operations, both inside of the USA as well as uh, globally. And they, they go on to call him a black Mussolini, um, a black fascist that has to be destroyed 
as well as later on, they apply the same logic to Martin Luther King Jr. and his movement. They're communists, too. They're, they're communists. They're because they believe in truth, according to the psych profiling and, and authoritarian personality, they must be potential American fascists. And, you know, the, the patriots at the FBI and the CIA are obliged to defuse these bombs beforehand and anything is justified, including uh, depatterning Paul Robeson. You know, people who've looked into this, um, I was shocked to discover that Paul Robeson never came back from his world tour. You know, he, he passed, he went to London, Moscow, never came back home. And he was, uh, or he didn't come back home for three more years because he was brought into London's Priory Hospital where he received two years of electroshock therapy and LSD treatments under CIA and MI6 watch. And it was only his family, his son, who worked very hard to pull him out of that and bring him back home. And he spent 15 years as a broken shell, never never able to come into the public light again. Right. Um, and, and his son documents how this was an MKUltra experiment. Um, COINTELPRO, the infiltration of civil rights movement groups by uh, agents to subvert it within, to create provocateurs, to destroy them and delegitimize them. Um, was also justified because, again, any of these civil rights groups um, being led by people like Martin Luther King could be yeah. new fascist movements in America, which it's ironic because the people <laughs> doing the infiltrating were themselves actually the real fascists. Um, so, yeah, they, they, these are all connected. The, the arts, the, the, the psychological, um, the mass psychiatrists, um, as well as the, the, the drug development, the entertainment that came out of this, like Allen Ginsberg, uh, Ken Kesey, um, the Grateful Dead, were all tied directly to, to MKUltra, as was Timothy Leary and, and these other groups. So it's important for people, the audience listening, have these different things in your mind at the same time, because if you try to analyze them individually, there's no solution. There's no causality that you're ultimately going to come to and that's that's useless which is yeah. why you made this podcast right to give people yeah. a more holistic unifying sense of thinking yeah and, I, yeah and i think it's important to keep it at uh or it's important to stay for a while at this this level of of method mm -hmm. and how these operations actually work because again what you're describing here why are they singling out individuals right why is cointel pro going at after xyz target uh, this question of environmental factors, right, of controlling the environment, mm -hmm. key factors, and making sure there aren't any aberrations that sort of uh, challenge the narrative, mm -hmm. right? So actually a lot of the work is about making sure that there is this constant narrative, right? And that there's nothing that sort of, you know, pierces through, that there's no cracks that people start to look through to see, well, I see there's, you know, there's some strange light, you know, and they start to get curious. Uh, so it takes a lot of work, actually, mm -hmm. uh, to maintain a narrative. And I think that's why it's important to recognize how uh, this whole question of culture works, right? This is why the CIA puts so much money into modern art, you know, who would have thought about that? You know, like, it's not about, it's, it wasn't about freedom of expression, Right. Mm -hmm. This was an intelligence operation mm -hmm. that they were using, uh, you know, under the guise of fighting communism. Right. Which had, you know, art and culture that's supposedly based on reason and rationality. And that that, you know, this was the basis for dictatorial or fascist states. Yeah. So we have to destroy the concept of reason. Right. That's that's a total logical. Uh, <laughs> well, it's not a logical step and that's why the whole point is there's a lot of money 
there's a lot of foundations, right? A lot of this was done through private foundations. Uh, there's the Rockefeller Foundation. There's the other one. It's called something Car- like Carnegie the- Foundation was big. Ford Foundation was big. Something um, called the Fairfield as well, or as yeah. something like that. It, they're just slush funds, basically. Yeah. Yeah, there's they're ultimately intelligence agency fronts to just make it. Yeah, to create um, something that would not be directly tied to MI6 or the CIA, but ultimately they were operated entirely at the the, on behalf of those intelligence agencies. Yeah. Yeah, and they're playing a catalyzing role, right? The idea is to catalyze new processes, right? Just this in the same way with the group dynamics, you're introducing new suggestions. It's not like you're strapping everybody in, you know, to chairs and mm-hmm. telling them this is not happening. That's not really how it works. Yeah. But you're creating fields, right? You're creating uh, organizations, uh, artificial organizations, artificial movements, yes. uh, artificial cults, mm-hmm. right? Artificial religions, artificial realities, mm-hmm. with the drugs, right? And the, and, and the culture. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes so easy to just tap out, mm-hmm. right? When you have all this chaos in the world, mm-hmm. uh, as you're describing this whole shock doctrine, shock therapy. So, you know, there's a lot of people going on about critical race theory and all these things. And how are these things able to sort of penetrate, you know, the boardrooms of the largest corporations and the corridors of power of, you know, the, the largest governments. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think you can only, if you have a sense of how these intelligence operations work and that a lot of this stuff is on a, a longer term scale, yeah. you know, then yeah, when the, when the whole economy is, you know, uh, in shambles, right, there's all sorts of chaos going on, uh, then it becomes all of a sudden, yeah, it's because of racism, yeah. you know, there's inequality and it becomes much easier to... Uh, accept these ideas, which I mean, if you actually had, you know, an actually functioning uh, economy that wasn't just based on these giant speculative bubbles, you know, that just keep Mm -hmm. bursting and you keep having to create these new speculative bubbles to keep everything going. um, If you actually had a functioning economy, everybody would say, well, what are you talking about? Yeah. I don't see what you're talking about. Exactly. You need to have a high level of chaos. Yeah. uh, And I mean, we don't need, we we won't say more about this, but there's a high level of fear right now, yeah. right? People are uh, accepting things that they would have never accepted yeah. even, you know, a year or two ago. Yeah. So just to say this question of fear and, and, and shell shock, mm-hmm. um, it's, again, the whole idea of this brainwashing is that uh, it only works if you're not aware uh, yeah. that it's happening. Yeah. Right? One, one, one thought that, also uh, came to mind as you were speaking is this idea of, of uh, a new scientific paganism um, to replace monotheism. Um, Because you have to really get rid of the idea of truthfulness as a, as something that that you can assume exists. And none of these guys allow for the existence of truthfulness. And part of the basis of critical theory, which came out of, uh, it was Max Horkheimer, again, Frankfurt school uh, leader, um, was that, okay, there is no truth. Everything that we have that we call truth is the effect of dominant ideologies that are part of the bourgeoisie that um, used capitalism to, just, to, to have power that they used to then justify their view of what things should be. And yeah. since, you know, it has to be the case that the winners of capitalism have tended to be uh, 
rich, wealthy white men, that yeah. everything else became uh, subdued and victimized by their assertion of their uh, will to power. And, mm -hmm. and by just making that definition, by making that model, um, the, you just put every single white male um, into the same box and all opinions that you had had in the past that were influenced for right or for wrong by white males with political influence became equally wrong and equally destructive and equally the enemy to be destroyed if you want to liberate somebody. So the, then from out of this, you had, and this was written up in the 1930s, uh, but it became a, applied and used to justify the extraction of school of things like debt, you know, reading dead white European males in the 1960s and 70s, yeah. um, who were all just seen as, you know, to the degree that we read Dante, which you've, I know, written some some amazing uh, essays on. Um, if we read Dante, they were thinking, well, then you're just justifying the subject subjugation of uh, victim classes and races and, and women. Um, which, you know, Dante was a beneficiary of their having been subjugated, right? So, um, or anybody who's, who's obsolete. And only new relevant thinkers who are properly nihilistic and existential reflecting the ugliness of our age should be taught to young people um, before they've even formed their, their critical faculties to make them as young people relevant in the society that we want to bring into being. So all that to say, they had to get rid of the idea of truthfulness as a process, and one of the things, and maybe we could touch upon this at the end, but I was just going to say, uh, at the same time that that uh, Horkheimer is writing this, um, you have in 1933, Max Planck, the, a real scientist who discovered truthfully a principle of science that opened up the door, the, the Planck con constant, right? And that life, uh, l light has a certain uh, harmonic, as he called it, harmonic oscillation function within a certain bandwidth. Um, that he narrowed down to what we know now term Planck's constant um, that we find everywhere we look in the universe. And so he opened up the domain of quantum theory, um, which had practical, provable uh, measurability to it, you know, our, our freedom yeah. to uh, harness the energy in the atom expanded massively um, yeah. through his collaboration with, with Albert Einstein. And he wrote a book uh, at this point called Where is Science Going?, which mm -hmm. is a wonderful book where he's really intervening on the, the collapse of truthfulness in science itself, because science is a domain just like culture, where there is a huge uh, political fight, a cultural fight over who's going to control the assumptions of, of science. And he was intervening directly on two opposing schools of, of thinking, which were both dead-end thoughts that both justified the Frankfurt School crowd. On the one hand, you had the radical empiricist groups who when you, know, you start looking in at things like photons and electrons um, and, 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 and protons inside of an atom, you start realizing that all of a sudden the very act of trying to measure them changes them because it requires a photon to hit another photon or a, an electron and then bounce back to your, your eye or at least your, your measuring device um, in order to see its velocity or its location. And, and just the very act of thus looking at it destroys its objective positions, right? either its speed, its velocity, or its position itself. So you, you can either know, you know, uh, this is the big paradox in the early 1900s, 1920s, was that you could either know the position or the velocity of, of, an, of an electron or, or a, a photon, but you can't know both. And, um, and so one school was, was saying, okay, because of that, all we can know is statistically the maybes, where it might be, and use probability theory to to have a science of maybe 
And that's all we can ever do is just it, yeah. perfect our maybes, our, our signs of probability forecasting. Um, that was called the Copenhagen School. It was run by Niels Bohr and Max Heisenberg. Yeah. Um, they ultimately totally rejected truth. They said there is quantum theory that Max Planck gave us and Albert Einstein has taught us that there is no truth. Now, people like Albert Einstein and Max Planck who were opening up the door didn't believe that. And they made the point, if we believe that, we could not have discovered what we discovered in quantum theory. So these, these other guys were just mathematicians and statisticians who like to gamble. And so on the one hand, you had to deal with that mode of thinking. On the other hand, you had the, the Bertrand Russells who were trying to uh, systematize the entire universe in a completely deterministic fashion, which is what Bertrand Russell did in his Principia Mathematica. You know, and, yeah, and, and, and in- With his set theory. His set theory, and, and yeah, exactly. And in the Principia with Alfred North Whitehead, he, he composes in this giant uh, mathematical document how you could feasibly reduce the entire universe. If you just had enough data that you could plug into your assumptions, you could reduce it to a set of, I don't know how many, you know, 12 or so assumptions, axioms. And with those axioms plugged in with data, you could then forecast everything that ever would be and everything that ever has been um, and have total determinability, no free will. So you have these two extremes and coming out of the one school, you have people like, um, you know, the information theorists like Norbert Wiener, John von Neumann, um, who are all taking the Bertrand Russell approach to social theory, you know, and, and, and economic analysis. And uh, that's horrific. It's basically behaviorism. It has no free will. No one, it doesn't acknowledge the existence of sub, sub, subjective qualities. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you got these other guys who, again, just deny truth. It's, it's all subjective. And uh, Max Planck is, is intervening in a marvelous way. And there's a dialogue at the end of it. It's called the Socratic Dialogue with Max Planck and oh. Albert Einstein, uh, which everyone should read on the nature of faith, of the spirit of God, of music, of creativity. And how if you try to sever the idea of um, the objective universe from the subjective soul of the personality who is exploring that universe, you lose science. You, you derail because we're part of the universe. And both make it clear that, that they understand the universe to be a musical universe. That's why they're both you know, classical pianists. Max Planck is a professional pianist. They would, he would perform with Einstein who would play the violin. And both of them together would account for how their ability to do this would allow them to then return to their mathematical mathematical formulas that they couldn't uh, figure a problem out. And they would be able to then have that additional freedom and flexibility of mind and spirit to, to come up with Eureka's. Um, but they both saw that they were, they themselves as science, as observers, explorers were part of the universe they were exploring. And to the degree that they had that understanding in mind, they were making discoveries. And to the degree that you lose that, and you sever it and you become like, a, you put yourself in a position of, of a voyeur outside of the thing you're looking at, the universe, yeah. um, you lose your creative powers. You lose your ability to judge more morally. You lose, you lose a sense of who you are. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that is just really important that these guys like Aldous Huxley and Timothy Leary and all of these other social scientists like Bertrand Russell, um, they weren't really scientists, though they tried to speak and act like scientists, and they tried to control the levers of science to the point that they would even deny that there was such a thing as truthfulness. Um, but they weren't. They actually never discovered anything real. They just discovered mechanisms to manipulate, and that's not science. Yeah, wow. Okay, well, you said a lot there, and I'm actually surprised we actually made it back to, you know, the opening idea was about the question of hypothesis formation. Mm-hmm. 
and you actually brought it back there. Wow, uh, that's that's great. Uh, but it, it also begs a lot of different questions. Um, and you know, the thing that actually stood out when you talked about Russell and you know the the Principia and this idea of just creating the reducing everything to a definite set of axioms from which you could derive everything that we'll ever know. And I've been thinking about this and actually that's probably one of the most evil things you could do. Um, and it's, it's really, it gets at this idea of the utopians, mm. right? And when you're talking about utopias, which are often dystopias, right? It's interesting how these, there's a nice uh, uh, play there. Uh, it really, it comes down to your idea of perfection. Mm. You know, is perfection something which is unchanging, static and never changing? Or is perfection something that is always changing and always improving, right? And when you get into this question of science, you know, if you're trying to reduce knowledge to a fixed set of axioms, definitions, postulates and all that, you're basically denying creativity mm. and discovery. That mm. if you have that, there's nothing more to discover, uh, which is, in a sense, it's it's the most anti-science thing you could say, because you're you're saying that there's nothing more you can know beyond this point, and the paradox is, well, how could you know that? You know, how could you know what you can't know? I mean, and this goes back to Plato, right? This gets back to this is where Plato defines this idea of the soul, right, as the the idea that for us to be able to discover something that we didn't know, the idea of a discovery implies that you did not know the thing that you're discovering. So the question becomes, how could you know that was the thing you were looking for when mm -hmm. you finally find it? If you didn't know that, what it, if you didn't already know what it was. Mm -hmm. And so this is where he gets at this idea of ideas right. and recollection, right? Which people try and mystify and all that, but it's really, uh, and this comes back with the Renaissance, uh, but this idea that the human mind, the way the human mind is organized and the way the universe are organized are actually uh, coherent, right? That there's actually harmony between the way the creative mind functions and the way the universe functions, mm -hmm. which that actually tells us what the nature of the universe is. That gives us a good indication if the way our minds work and the way the universe work uh, actually, if there's a harmony there between mm -hmm. the macrocosm and the microcosm mm -hmm. and that scientifically speaking and, and logically speaking, it's actually necessary because how could you know anything? How could you make a discovery of anything if you don't already have a reference point for that within you? Mm -hmm. You would never be able to recognize anything outside yourself, which is exactly what Planck is getting at with this idea of trying to sever the, uh, sub the inner subjective world from the outer objective world. And that actually science is about uh, bringing those two together. And this is really what happens uh, in the Renaissance as well, right? Mm -hmm. Where there is a scientific uh, dimension and there's a theological uh, and religious uh, dimension where you had, it was a, a Christian civilization where the, there was the idea of imago viva dei that every individual was in the image of a creator and was kapak's day, right? Mm. Had the capacity to act in a godlike fashion. But the question is, okay, well, if that is true, right? And, you know, whatever, okay, we have this broad idea of a creator or a, a composer, right? Plato 
defines it in his Timaeus uh, as the composer. And the Timaeus is actually about getting into the mind of the composer, right? Getting into, well, how, if we want to understand how the universe works, we should probably understand how the mind of the composer that would craft this universe yeah. uh, works, mm -hmm. right? So you have, so what part of it, what part of human beings is in the image of a creator or a composer or is composer like, well, it's the intellect. Nicholas Cusa defines this, he defines four different levels of knowledge and above uh, logic, ratiocination, however you want to say it, mm -hmm. um, rationality, you have the intellect, which is able to resolve paradoxes like the one and the many, right? Like the idea that the maximum is also the minimum, that the microcosm and the macrocosm actually uh, intersect, yeah. which from an Aristotelian standpoint is impossible. You can't be the maximum and the minimum, but Kuza makes the point that, well, if, you, if you're looking at the way the universe is actually organized, everything that's in the universe is part of that universe. And therefore in some way, uh, has to reflect the rest of the universe, but yeah, there has to be the signature of the entire universe in every of, of one of it. It's parts yeah. down to the minuscule. Um, and as a concrete example of what you just said, um, since it might still be abstract, yeah. we are each one of us. If, if you want an example, each one of us represents this. You are a one, you're a one Dave. I'm one Matthew, you listening or one, whoever you are, but you're also, uh, parts, right? You could, you could, describe yourself as a as a sum of parts of organs and cells or body parts you know there's a variety of ways you can characterize yourself as you know 30 trillion cells or something yeah. but also you could continuously who's to say you can't infinitely divide in your abstract world all of those parts infinitely right the space between two moments can be infinitely divided so yeah. you're you're a one you are a many you're an infinite um and that's like that for anything you want to conceptualize, whether it's a planet, whether it's a solar system, whether it's a galaxy or a cluster of galaxies, it, 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 they're all at the same time, a one, a many, and an infinite. And I just wanted to make, put some flesh on the bones of that idea for people. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a very powerful idea. And so the, the idea of Imago Vivide, uh, that you know, people like Kuza uh, were, were really driving home and which took hold with the mm -hmm. Renaissance, it, the human being is imago day through their intellect, yeah. through their creative uh, capacity. And the point, and I mean, this is what's attacked today, uh, you know, the idea of infinite growth. Yeah. You know, Nicholas of Cusa gets at this idea of truth by saying that the intellect, or what is true, cannot be measured by that which is not true. Yeah. And human beings do not have truth. They do not know truth. So there's no way for human beings to ever know truth so well that they can't know truth uh, any further. And he gives the, uses the metaphor of the polygon inscribed within the circle, right? If you put a square, pentagon, hexagon, octagon, you keep adding sides to that polygon within the circle, uh, you can keep trying to approach identity with the circle, adding more and more sides ad infinitum till, you know, the difference is immeasurable but the reality is that you're never going to square the circle because in fact, a circle is something that has no sides. So if you have a polygon with infinite sides, which is infinitely close, you're actually infinitely far. Mm -hmm. you're never, 
So mm-hmm. you can always know truth more. Yeah. So this idea that there is a, a limit to knowledge, right? Which is really the, one of the, the main axioms right now uh, in society, right? What's underlying, uh, you know, the way there's this caricature of infinite growth, right? It's this idea that, you know, there are fixed resources. There are these absolute limits and these absolute equilibriums, which we have to respect, mm-hmm. which totally ignores the fact that we don't know most things. We don't know most things about the universe. So how is it that we could know all these absolute limits, which we must absolutely uh, abide yeah, by? Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And this is where you, it gets, it gets pretty, it can, it can get really crazy once you start trying to impose these abstractions onto the physical yeah. world yeah. and, you know, human population growth, food production, and you're saying, well, there's just too many people, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, you, and we see this in the culture, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of overpopulation, uh, you know, the Soylent Green, uh, you, I forget you were talking about that in another interview, right? Where people have to basically eat people uh, because there's just no more food, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, you see this in the culture today, uh, all this doomsday stuff, but if you get this idea of, of, of that Kuz is trying to develop about the nature of truth and the human mind's relationship to truth and how we investigate truth, then you can see through that. But you can also see that it's kind of nefarious if you really start to impose that as a universal that has to shape the thinking and behavior of everybody in society, especially when the real world doesn't actually uh, you know, respond to that. You need austerity. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? You need austerity. You need technocratic governments. Yeah. You have to make really hard decisions. Yeah. Well, um, that's that's right. That's... Healthcare. Yeah. And it yeah. gets very dark very fast. So I think people better understand this because yeah. if you look at the kind of discussions that are being had right now, um, it's serious stuff. Yes. And conclusions, right? The idea of not letting a crisis go to waste. Uh, things that were thought unthinkable become at least thinkable. Um, and this is the whole idea. Yeah, um, and, and that, that's a direct reference from from Julian Huxley's UNESCO founding document where he talks about the need to make eugenics become uh, accepted where Hitler had made it uh, disgusting in the minds of most people who would now become aware of what co- the political consequences of eugenics actually were as far as uh, right. a science of, of population management for an elite. Um, but he's like, no, this has to become normalized again. And he devotes his life to that. Um, and he's the one who says, yeah, we have to make the unthinkable become thinkable. The, the Great Reset, I mean, if you look at uh, the, the theories underlying and justifying these political changes that are underway right now that some uh, sociopathic technocrats really giddily get, get off of and really envision for this imaginary new world that they want to bring in as some sense of order after some chaos. Um, they really do justify their, their, their actions based on a combination of uh, Copenhagen statistical interpretations of the quantum of randomness and the belief that, okay, every, every system has random parts and human beings are, are an example of a system that has random parts and we're all ultimately random, they believe. We do things for no reason. Um, and that's why we cannot self-govern. That's why they don't believe in nation states because nation states are the composite of people. And if people are individually, uh, irrational, you, they can't manage their own affairs. So you need a scientific elite 
an enlightened elite to manage it from above, who they yeah. have dubbed themselves to be. But yeah. then on the other hand, um, you need experts, right? You need experts, experts are telling us how everything has to be done. Who have cold, yeah, who have the stomachs to do make the tough decisions because what are those tough decisions? Well, as you pointed out, it's these absolute predetermined uh, material constraints that they say are measurable. So just like Max Planck was trying to re repel uh, and defuse the emerging school of, the, of behaviorists and, and determinists in, in physics, mm -hmm. as well as these indeterminists of stat statistical thinkers, on the other hand, he was trying to you know, get across that there's a false polarization. It's these same two schools that have crushed the people who actually think creatively like Max Planck, like Einstein, and have relegated them to the outskirts of, of science, not to be respected or not to be published. If you want to be peer reviewed and, re and provided funds for research, you can't think like Planck or Einstein did. And, yeah. and, and people like George Soros, who funds things like the Institute for New, uh, uh, New Economic Thinking, um, he's of the view, just as his, his uh, mentor, Karl Popper, that we have to have an open society, but that open society has to be based upon the absolute, the belief in absolute equilibrium, as well as the absolute irrationality of the parts. You can't resolve that unless you create uh, the maximum illusion of freedom based on this erotic, give everybody the, the pleasure of doing what, or satisfying their pleasures and avoiding pain on the individual level, make that their identities so that they cannot think about the whole. And the only people who can think about the whole are the accepted upper level management who are given a different education like George Soros's prodigies. Um, so it's really unnatural if you actually carry out this type of perversion, which is unscientific, it denies truth, it denies all of the evidence of thousands of years of human experience, of our ability to, to become self-aware and to act upon the discovered laws of creation in a way that makes life better for ourselves and our grandchildren and beyond. If you deny that, then the society always will reach a breaking point of collapse because um, you can't stifle um, indefinitely that type of natural, creative, loving process that every baby has and needs to develop just like our bodies need, need water and food and nutrition. Our, our souls yeah. have certain uh, food that it requires too. And if you, do, if you stifle that, it, your system might work on a, on a blackboard or a whiteboard um, as an information theorist or something, you know, postulating the nature of AI or replacing human beings. But in reality, reality is very different. Yeah. And I just want to end my, that thought with a quote by Planck um, before I, I give you the baton. Um, but Planck said something wonderful where he described how science, and this is real science here, science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature. And that is because in the last analysis, we ourselves are a part of nature and therefore part of the mystery that we are trying to solve. Mm. Music, music and art are to an extent also attempts to solve or at least to express that mystery. But to my mind, the more we progress with either, the more we are brought into harmony with all of nature itself. And that is one of the great services of science to the individual. Mm, beautiful. I mean, there, there are so many things that we could say. In a sense, all that we know are mysteries, mm -hmm. right? The more that we actually investigate the universe, uh, the more unknowns we actually discover. Yeah, it's super, it's, it's very much Kuza, right? That idea that there's no fixed point. There's constantly, the, the whole point is the, the yearning, the effort, the progress that we make in the arts 
is what brings us into the harmony, but there's no end point. And that would demoralize lazy, lazy people who just want to like <laughs> live in lethargy in their castles forever. And that's like their, their ultimate ideal of what drives their creative, creative raison d'être. Um, but if you're a human being in touch with your humanity, then this is not a scary thing. This is a beautiful thing. It means we could always make <laughs> life better. We can make things better always, right? Right. That's the idea of the American, American uh, Declaration of Independence. It's right there in order to form a more perfect union. Yeah. Right. A more perfect union is a very paradoxical thing because I either you're you're better, you're more better, or you're perfect. How can you be more perfect? Well, there's a whole philosophical concept embedded in those simple poetic words that people have to really think a lot more deeply about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's so much that could be said, but yeah, this <laughs> idea of perfection is that just if people take anything away from all this. Uh, you know, what is perfection really? What are the different ideas of perfection that actually exist? Mm -hmm. uh, and how can we investigate uh, the nature of these different ideas of perfection? And how does that actually play out uh, in the way that we're going to organize our society, right? And what's the, the oligarchical idea of perfection as this fixed system versus the, the humanist, the real, not the Bertrand Russell, uh, Julian Huxley humanist, but not the, the robot, actual, not the robot humanists. <laughs> Renaissance humanist idea of a creative unfolding of the universe, of the mind, uh, and of the human species, in which the idea of perfection is increasing the power to change, to make new discoveries, right, to further uh, transcend whatever you know physical or material limits exist at any one given moment, uh, those are always just defined by our level of knowledge uh, of the universe, which is infinite, uh, if you understand Kuza and mm -hmm. this idea of truth. Amen to that. I, I could definitely drink yeah. to that. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but this is why we're going to have new episodes every week. So, I really thank everybody for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed the, uh, hope everybody enjoyed the conversation. I uh, thank you, Matthew, for joining us. And I would uh, recommend to everybody that you can find more of Matt's work at, uh, Matt, here comes a plug. Yeah, you can go to the, uh, the Rising Tide Foundation, which I, I manage with my wife, uh, Cynthia Chung, who's also a co-author uh, with me at Strategic Culture Foundation. So you can go to strategicculturefoundation.org. Uh, for some of our writings there, uh, the Canadian Patriot Review, CanadianPatriot.org also is another place. And yeah, Rising Tide Foundation is RisingTideFoundation.net. Um, I've discovered that there are a few Rising Tide Foundations. Unfortunately, uh, some of them are libertarian uh, and confuse people. Um, so who, rising who try to, tide who try to Google us. Rising Tide Singular. Rising Tide Singular Foundation.net, N-E-T. And, and so... With that, people could make a donation, follow our, our work, uh, take part in lectures that we host weekly or, or readings as well, which we have study groups that meet up on Zoom every week as well. And so just send us an email at info at risingtide.net. And uh, yeah, you could uh, take part. Okay, well, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us. Thanks for having me on. We'll have you on back soon. All right, ciao. Okay.